Turn for our second half of the program. We do note at the top here the passing of rock and roll legend Fats Domino. The resident of New Orleans passed away last week at age 89. He had quite a career in music. He was one of the first 10 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Rolling Stone record guide likened him to Benjamin Franklin, the beloved old man of a revolutionary movement. His obituary has noted that Domino's dynamic performance style and warm vocals drew crowds for five decades. His biggest hits, in addition to Ain't That a Shame, which I think is my personal favorite, included I'm Walkin', Shake, Rattle, and Roll, and his most famous tune, Blueberry Hill. Reportedly, he recorded his first song, The Fat Man, in the back of a tiny French Quarter recording studio. It was noted he was no matinee idol at five foot five and 200 pounds. Apparently he sang in the song, They call me the fat man because I weigh 200 pounds. All the girls, they love me because I know my way around. It was back in 1955 that he broke into the white pop charts with Ain't That a Shame, which was covered rather blandly by Mr. Pat Boone, who apparently had an argument with his producers about, well, shouldn't it be Isn't That a Shame? <laughs> Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. I do like the cover by Cheap Trick of, of Ain't That a Shame, but uh, he, he was, he, his songs were covered by everybody. In fact, I'm Walkin' became a debut hit single for young Ricky Nelson. Fats Domino, gone but not forgotten. Something else from the Old South that's gone but evidently not forgotten is To Kill a Mockingbird. We report on this program the efforts down in Biloxi, Mississippi, to withdraw the classic novel from the 8th grade curriculum. After a national outcry, the book is, well, sort of back. Earlier this month, Biloxi officials said 8th graders would no longer read the book, which takes a critical look at racism in a southern town in the 1930s through the eyes of a 10-year-old girl as part of the regular English curriculum because its racist language made some people uncomfortable. After the outcry, they've now made the book available again to students, although they will not be required to read it. Some critical letters noted that these derogatory and offensive words are powerful. They make people uncomfortable because they are painful to hear. Uh, you know, I don't quite understand this myself. If you watch black entertainment television or listen to rap, you will hear those same offensive words about every 10 seconds. But anyway, the book's back good. And in a non-related literary issue, we do note that there is apparently a controversy going on at the moment over the use of the comma. This was written up in The Economist recently. I, I'm not literary enough to explain this very well, but the controversy apparently swirls over whether you should have like X comma, Y comma, and Z, or whether you can get by with X comma, Y and Z. It's clear that if you want to be more precise about your meaning, the extra comma may be useful. 
As a writer to The Economist pointed out, to avoid potential ambiguity, there is a case to be made for the use of the serial comma, as evidenced by the following apocryphal book dedication, which omits it. To my parents, comma, Ayn Rand and God. Someone else wrote to say, I found that using commas is a delicate balance between making a sentence clearly understood and trying not to sound like William, comma, Shatner, comma, and his infamous, comma, cadence. Now, we probably should make mention of the fact that things are swirling around Robert Mueller's investigation and Mr. Paul Manafort, and, you know, who was previously a partner of the previously mentioned Roger Stone. This is breaking news. It's hard to settle out. It's being covered well uh, in the press, so we're going to let that one go this week, but we will return to it in the future as it perhaps gets clearer which way the winds are blowing on all of this. And although the Soviet Union is no longer run by the Communist Party, China is. The People's Republic of China is still officially operated by the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, the head of the party and the head of the nation, Mr. Xi Jinping, recently was honored in a very unusual way. They're currently convening a Communist Party Congress in Beijing, and party officials there voted last week to elevate Xi Jinping's political philosophy into, quote, thought, unquote, which is written into their constitution. This gives it the same standing as Mao Zedong's thought, and it places it actually above Deng Xiaoping's theory. Party officials are calling him Ling Zhu, which is a term for absolute leader rarely used since the time of Chairman Mao. Clearly, Xi Jinping is solidifying his hold over the country, at least his hold over the Communist Party, which is the same thing. It should be noted that Xi Jinping is projecting what for China is unprecedented military power abroad. They've taken some of these disputed islands out in the South China Sea and dumped enough concrete on them to make a theater, which apparently will secure their hold on this coral outcropping. We should note, as The Economist did recently, that it's not ancient history that frightens the Chinese. It is the disintegration of the Soviet Union. For Xi Jinping, everything begins and ends with the party. If it collapses, so will the country. Chinese leaders attribute the Soviet implosion to a failure of self-confidence by Russian communists and are determined that nothing like that should ever occur in China. Xi has spoken of the Russians, quote, not being man enough, unquote, to stand up for their party. From the start, he has set out to be man enough. He's also cracked down on anything that might remotely challenge the Communist Party's monopoly of power, arresting human rights lawyers by the score, and passing a new law to make life harder for charities. It is noted that above all else, Mr. Xi has shifted the balance of power between the party and the government. He has sidelined his prime minister, and prime ministers used to be in charge of the economy, but the main institution for economic policymaking now seems to be the small group on deepening reform, which Xi Jinping chairs. Now, we are happy to report that uh, I, I now have in my possession World Without Mind, the Existential Threat of Big Tech by Franklin Foer. I may quote from before the hour is up, but uh, suffice it to say that more will be said about it when it's finished. We are very concerned about uh, some of the directions which technology is leading us and don't like to think that the People's Republic of China should be the model which we are following. But according to New Scientist magazine, China now has a super smart city that tracks your every move. This is worth 
discussing for a moment. To quote from New Scientist, for the past 12 months, Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba has been slurping up video feeds, social media data, traffic information, and other data from Hangzhou City for its City Brain Project. The stated goal was to improve life in Hangzhou by letting artificial intelligence process this data and use it to control aspects of urban life. The magazine notes it seems to have worked. The trial has reportedly been so successful that the company is now packaging the system for export to other places in China and eventually the rest of the world. The magazine notes that using AI to optimize Hangzhou has many positive effects. Traffic congestion is down. Road accidents are automatically detected and responded to faster. And illegal parking is tracked in real time. If someone breaks the law, they too can be tracked throughout the city before being picked up by the police. Quoting Jean Sheng Hua, the deputy managing director of AI at Alibaba, quote, in China, people have less concern with privacy, which allows us to move faster, unquote. The magazine says, consider the example of traffic flow. Using hundreds of thousands of cameras dotted throughout the city, Alibaba can track almost every car on every road. It can instantly detect crashes, blockages, or parking violations, and automatically notify the police to deal with them. The system can predict the traffic flow 10 minutes ahead of time with 90% accuracy and responds to changing traffic light patterns to even out congestion. It can even send text messages to people to help them plan different routes. They note that the average journey time has improved 10%, and better traffic flow means less fuel usage, which is better for air quality and better for the planet. But, notes the magazine, some see clear downsides. A fully smart city means that, you're, that pretty much every aspect of your life is tracked. And yes, that allows a great deal of efficiency, but the privacy issues are huge. That's a quote from Paul Bernal at the University of East Anglia in the UK. Magazine notes this is more apparent in the city's other optimizations. Alibaba's algorithms index all video footage so that it can be searched quickly later. If police give the city brain a picture of, say, a motorcyclist, the AI will return exact matches detailing where and when that motorcyclist has been in the city since the project began. It's easy to identify when people are not following the, quote, normal, unquote, behavior patterns. Having identified people who are not, quote, normal, unquote, they can, of course, then be tracked and so can who they meet with and where they go and so forth. As a way to control dissident movements or anything the authorities don't like, it's perfect. Well, if this doesn't scare the pants off you, I don't think you can be scared. And in other international political news, we have this. Despite arguing it didn't go far enough, Nicaragua has now signed the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. That move leaves Syria as the only country not to have signed. Syria is a little bit preoccupied right now with the country coming apart in a civil war. It also leaves it alongside the United States of America, where President Donald Trump has pledged to withdraw from the agreement, though he can't legally do that until November of 2020. And after receiving global criticism, the World Health Organization has rescinded the appointment of Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador. The WHO's new director general, Tedros Adhanom, said, I have consulted with the government of Zimbabwe and we have concluded that this decision is in the best interests of the World Health Organization. 
Tedros had announced the appointment a couple weeks ago, praising Zimbabwe as, quote, a country that places universal health coverage at the center of its policies, unquote. Tedros had said that Mugabe could use the role of goodwill ambassador, quote, to influence his peers in the region when it came to fighting diseases such as heart attacks and strokes. It should be noted that several world leaders and health organizations and Radio Parallax were outraged by the decision, noting that Zimbabwe's health system has collapsed under the Mugabe regime. Medical workers often go unpaid. The city's life expectancy is now lower than it was in the 1980s. And almost half of all deaths as a result of childbirth are avoidable. Oh, and President Mugabe, when he needs health care, he travels abroad. The U.S. State Department weighed in by saying this appointment clearly contradicts the United Nations' ideals of respect for human rights and human dignity. Given Mugabe's appalling human rights record, calling him a goodwill ambassador for anything embarrasses WHO and Dr. Tedros. That quote comes from Ian Levine of the charity Human Rights Watch. At this time, about all we can say about Robert Mugabe is that if he really wants to help his country of Zimbabwe, he should die as soon as possible. And that's not a very nice thing to say, but it's true. Let's see if we can lighten the mood by talking about another personality about whom we have spoken favorably in the past. That would be David Hasselhoff. Some years back, Mr. Hasselhoff, who is an enormously popular singer and entertainer in Germany, made an appearance down to Lower Freeborn Hall and checked out the KDVS record stacks and was generally a nice goodwill ambassador, unlike Robert Mugabe. And then an update about... (laughs) about Hasselhoff, which, I, frankly, we just can't resist. The Observer in the UK noted that he is arguably more famous today than in his 1990s heyday. The 65-year-old actor, who was best known for two cheesy TV series, Baywatch and Knight Rider, until he created his showbiz alter ego, The Hoff. Hasselhoff has explained, The Hoff is an accentuated, over-egotistical version of me. I created him because when I was 50, a bunch of secretaries in Australia were sending emails with all these Hoffisms, like Bravehoff, some like it Hoff. He's Hoff the Cuff. Hasselhoff smelled a business opportunity, one that would allow him to keep up his lavish lifestyle. He was quoted as saying, once you come into money, that's it. You never want to be without it. It's great. It's everything I thought it would be. It's freedom. So now you can buy Hoff mugs and key rings, play a Hoff video game, and watch a mockumentary TV series Hoff the record. As noted that there are even Hoff jokes, and we may want to insert a trigger warning at this point. You may have an adverse reaction to the following joke. But the man himself says, okay, here, Hasselhoff walks into a bar. The barman says, how you doing, Mr. Hasselhoff? He says, from now on, I'm just the Hoff. And the barman says, no hassle. (laughs) In Hasselhoff's opinion, that's pretty funny. So he went out and patented it. He has patented, don't hassle the Hoff. He claims this has made him a million dollars. We're skeptical, but hey, maybe. This reminds us of another metaphor, roughing up the suspect, about which we will say no more. All right, if we don't do an edition of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, we sometimes get letters. Although we haven't heard from you in a long time. Why don't you drop us a line, dear listener, and let us know that you're still listening. All 
right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for Connections. After Montana's Whitefish Energy won a $300 million no-bid contract to rebuild Puerto Rico's electrical grid, despite having only two full-time employees. It should be noted that Whitefish was founded by a major donor to President Donald Trump, and its CEO is a friend of U.S. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinkel, who grew up in Whitefish, Montana. My understanding is that they've since um, rescinded that offer due to the minor political firestorm generated. And it was a bad week last week for racial equality with the news that a University of Pennsylvania's teaching assistant has declared that she chooses which students to call on by race. Stephanie McKellop, evidently self-described as a queer disabled feminist, said in a since-deleted tweet, I will always call on my black women students first, followed by other people of color, white women, and if I have to, white men. Evidently, the University of Pennsylvania is investigating. And it was an ugly week last week for freedom of speech, at least in the Cub Scouts, with the news that a Colorado Cub Scout has been kicked out of his den for asking a state senator why she backed a bill that would let domestic violence offenders buy guns. At the time, GOP State Senator Vicki Marble praised Ames Mayfield, age 11, for his thorough quote-unquote questioning. But later, the den leader told Mayfield's mom the question was too political and the boy was no longer welcome. Young Mayfield said, I don't feel I did anything wrong. Well, neither do we. And we don't know whether this is a good week for or a bad week for being a member of Amazon Prime. You can make the selection yourself, dear listener. But the story is a Florida couple apparently ordered some plastic bins on Amazon.com, and when they arrived, they found 65 pounds of plastic-wrapped marijuana inside. The couple turned the weed over to the cops, but reportedly feared that drug dealers may come after them. In addition, it was probably a bad and ugly week last week for French croissants with the news that France is enduring its worst butter shortage since World War II. Though the price of butter has doubled to about three sixty a pound over the past year, supermarket shelves quickly empty of the staple. The price of buttery pastries like croissants has also rocketed, and bakers unable to keep their hands on enough butter are having to cut workers' hours. This crisis is rooted in the European Union's 2015 decision to abolish its system of milk quotas. The resulting glut of milk caused a price collapse that led dairy farmers to slash output, and now there's not enough milk to meet the butter demand. Reportedly, French bakers are refusing to replace butter with margarine. Quoting José Pires, a Paris bakery manager, that would be unprofessional. We agree. We have puzzled on this program in the past over how it was margarine somehow managed to be seen as a healthful alternative to butter. Mr. McMillan blames doctors, claiming that they told people for years that if you switched to margarine, it was better for your heart. For my part, I don't remember being taught that in medical school. And while Radio Parallax remains unsure of the state of the croissant in Colombia, it apparently it is apparently now, finally, possible to get a decent cup of coffee in Bogota. Colombia is the world's third largest coffee producer, but until recently, good coffee was quite rare because the country exports nearly all of its excellent Arabica beans, forcing the locals to make brews with cheap imports from as far away as Vietnam. 
The most popular style of coffee is Tinto in Colombia, a weak, murky brown concoction, but consumers but consumers have started to demand better brews and in recent years upscale cafes have caught on. Speaking of Puerto Rico, as we were just a moment ago, we think we should quote from the briefing section of the week, which is almost always first class. They asked a couple of questions in the briefing. Why is Puerto Rico part of the United States? The answer was Puerto Ricans had no choice in the matter. A Spanish colony since Ponce de Leon established a settlement there in 1508. Puerto Rico had just acquired voting rights in its own constitution in 1898 when the U.S. invaded the island during the Spanish-American War. The generals promised the locals, descendants of Spanish colonists, former slaves, and indigenous Taino people, a free future, and so many sided with the U.S. against Spanish rule. Once the war was over and Spain had ceded the island, along with the Philippines and Guam, the U.S. did not recognize the local parliament and instead set up a colonial administration. The U.S. presidents appointed governors who chose their own cabinets. Puerto Rico was effectively a colony, although officially a territory. And I was a little bit surprised by their answer to the question, why isn't it a state? The answer that the week gave was, for racial reasons. Most U.S. territories did become states. Oklahoma, for example, became a territory in 1890 and a state in 1907. The difference was that Oklahoma was settled largely by English-speaking whites who displaced the Native Americans. Starting in 1901, the same Supreme Court that had approved separate but equal segregation for blacks in the infamous Plessy v. Ferguson case ruled in a series of decisions that Puerto Rico and other territories that were, quote, inhabited by alien races, unquote, were not to be governed, quote, by Anglo-Saxon principles, unquote. Puerto Rico was declared an unincorporated territory, different from the Hawaiian and Alaskan incorporated territories, and the path to statehood was reportedly closed off. The magazine notes that unlike Plessy versus Ferguson, the insular cases, as those rulings were known, never got overturned. Wow. Anyway, Puerto Rico does pay about $3 billion annually to the U.S. federal government, but unfortunately for the rest of the taxpayers, it withdraws about $20 billion in aid. And that, we would note, was before the hurricane. All right, we got about five minutes left. Let's do a quick lightning round of bagging on tech. Article in The Economist on Gorilla Glass, really high-strength glass, which we all seem to use in our cell phones, notes that one of the big areas for growth in the manufacture, for the manufacturers of this glass will be in cars. They note that already instruments and switches on the dashboard of new cars are being replaced with touchscreens, a trend we would abhor. In the old days, it was recognized that when you reach your hand out the dials and gauges you are touching should give you feedback to know what you are manipulating. There's no such feedback on a touch screen. Furthermore, if you're over the age of 40, you will realize that you have to take your eyes off the road, refocus, which gets a little bit harder with age, and makes the whole practice of trying to use a touch screen in a car actually dangerous. Oh, and by the way, it's the big tech companies like Amazon that are really pushing for drones. They've invested heavily in drones. The technology is there, and they want to deliver packages in your neighborhood by flying large objects in your airspace. To say nothing of the annoyance factors of having these things buzz your house and the potential invasions of your privacy, what about the fact that they are occasionally going to go wrong and crash? And if an object coming down upon you from three or four hundred feet in height that weighs 50 or 60 pounds doesn't scare you, 
as we said a minute ago, maybe you're not very scarable. And speaking of technology and cars, there's a big push, of course, for the driverless vehicle. Writing about that, new scientists in their October 21st issue pose this issue. Would you ride in a car that was prepared to kill you? An ethical knob, quote-unquote, could let the owners of self-driving cars choose their vehicle's ethical setting. You can set the car to sacrifice you for the survival of others or to have it always sacrifice others to save you. The magazine noted that the dilemma of how self-driving cars should tackle moral decisions is one of the major problems facing manufacturers. It notes that people's attitudes on the issue is complicating things. A 2015 study found that most people think a driverless car should be utilitarian, taking actions to minimize the amount of overall harm, which might mean sacrificing its own passengers in certain circumstances. And while people agreed to this in principle, they said they would never get in a car that was prepared to kill them. Apparently, researchers over in Bologna, Italy right now are working on an AI setting that will go along a spectrum ranging from full altruist to full egoist. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but according to Selena Larson writing in CNN.com, there is a software bug out there which affects most of the world's Wi-Fi connections, which could let hackers spy on you. A Belgian security researcher announced last week that he discovered a critical flaw in the WPA2, a global protocol that encrypts traffic on Wi-Fi networks. This flaw, dubbed Crack allows a hacker within a range of a targeted device to reset the encryption keys, exposing transmitted information to being read or stolen. Wired.com notes that in practice that means hackers could steal your passwords, intercept your financial data, or even manipulate commands to say, send your money to themselves. They note that some devices, including those running Windows and iOS, are mercifully already protected thanks to newly released security patches, but tens of millions of Android and Linux devices remain exposed. Wired.com also says, if we're honest, the crack Wi-Fi mess is going to take decades to clean up. Nice. And with the two minutes left, I think I'm going to quote from the prologue of World Without Mind by Franklin Foer, in which he notes that the big tech companies, which the Europeans have charmingly and correctly lumped together as GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, are shredding the principles that protect individuality. Their devices and sites have collapsed privacy. They disrespect the value of authorship with their hostility to intellectual property. In the realm of economics, they justify monopoly with their well-articulated belief that competition undermines our pursuit of the common good and ambitious goals. When it comes to the most central tenet of individualism, free will, the tech companies have a different way. They hope to automate the choices, both large and small, that we make as we float through the day. It's their algorithms that suggest the news we read, the goods we buy, the path we travel, and the friends we invite into our circle. He goes on to say, It's not hard to marvel at these companies and their inventions, which often make life infinitely easier. But we've spent too much time marveling. The time has arrived to consider the consequences of these monopolies, to reassert our own role in determining the human path. Once we cross certain thresholds, once we transform the values of institutions, once we abandon privacy, there's no turning back, no restoring our lost individuality. We'll read more from that book in the future, but want to close with this. Scientists at Harvard University, astronomers in fact, have examined data from other sun-like stars to try and determine how probable solar super flares are. They found that the most extreme ones are likely to occur about every 20 million years. 
which makes the odds pretty good. But if the Earth is struck like the one which hit us 150 years ago during the next 100 years, a new study finds that it could destroy electrical grids, satellites, and the Internet. We've talked about this in the show before, the Carrington event of 1859. We'll no doubt talk about it again. But someone's tried to quantify the odds of it happening again, and what they've currently come up with is a 12% chance of it reoccurring in the next decade. So, one chance out of eight that the Internet might be destroyed by a solar flare? Wow. The good news, if that happens, of course, is that we'll have to worry less about what concerns Mr. Franklin for. Yes, I don't know how we're going to get by without videos of cats playing the piano. Mr. Edward McMillan, who produced this program as he does all of them. I am your Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, which continues to evolve. We are currently operating on the outskirts of Silicon Valley, which has focused our attention a little bit more on the kind of shenanigans going on down there in Sunnyvale and Mountain View and Santa Clara, etc.